So with Super Bowl 57 just a few days away now, I wanted to talk to retired Eagles defensive lineman Chris Long, a former Walter Payton Man of the Year, about the craft, the violence of his old job down in the trenches, and specifically in Philly. But uh, first, we had to discuss something even more important. There's a way to start this where I list off all of your accomplishments, like 11 years in the NFL, Super Bowls, two of them. You got those. You have your own show. I'm talking to you from your fancy studio, the Greenlight Podcast with Chris Long. You should check it out. He's good at this. But the way I want to start is actually just by noting that our history, limited as it is, takes place in the realm of fantasy football. Yeah. And this season was controversial for you mostly because I was awesome. Yeah. I think I finished third. Yeah. I got my money back. You struggled. You were not the man of the year. Yeah. So our friend Tommy Alter, who people know from Old Man in the Three and JJ and Tommy, equally great guys. Sure. Tommy started this league and he was like, yeah, you want to be in the league? Hey, you know how these league things go if you're sitting at home? Like the commissioner of the league hopefully alerts the league as to when the draft starts. And however that commissioner alerts the league, generally that mode of communication continues through the entire run-up to the draft. So if you pick email, then you're probably going to email about any changes to the draft time. That's right. If you pick text, well, I'm going to be monitoring that group text. So Tommy Alter, I believe, began his thread of communication with us, the people in the league, on a group text. And by the way, this is us and like a bunch of NBA players. Alex Caruso is in this league. He was actually, I think, the last place finisher for the record. Never stopped hustling, but... Incredible, because I didn't even sign in. So, um, <laughs> And you know what? It's, it's a bit of karma, because what I found out was, long story short, Tommy uh, changed the time the draft was starting and alerted me via email, which is basically like pissing into the wind, like anyways, like I don't do email. <laughs> and when you change the mode of communication, that's like a code break. I got auto-drafted through three rounds. Then I find out that the friggin' draft moved because of Alex Caruso's flight. That's right. You know, Tommy Alter is bending over backwards for NBA players, <laughs> but for NFL players... I... The actual football player in the league, the one guy in the league who played in the f***ing league. Yes. That's what happened to you. Brutal, dude. To be fair... I only try at these these leagues if there's a punishment. The punishment for this league is you doing this. This is yeah. what happened to you. <laughs> this is good. This is easy. What offensive and defensive linemen actually do is really hard to understand if you have never done it. And we should be honest here, as enormous as these dudes are, the vast majority of us barely even pay attention to them. Howard Mudd, one of the greatest O-line coaches ever, referred to his players as the Mushroom Society because like mushrooms, he said, they're kept in the dark and fed with the expectation that good things will grow. But in three days, we're going to watch a Super Bowl where the Eagles are favored because of their dominion over the part of the field that we understand the least. And so today, we ask Chris Long, 
to shine a spotlight onto the trenches along the D-line he played on and that singular Philly O-line he faced in practice every day. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, February 9th. And this is ESPN Daily. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So, Chris, the other detail that we need to disclose at the top here is that you know this Eagles team really intimately. Yeah. Like, you won the Super Bowl together. You won Philly's first Super Bowl ever, to be specific, mm-hmm. with a lot of the same guys who are on this team right now. And you and Lane Johnson in particular, the star tackle, we'll talk about a bunch in a bit here. You guys did a lot of celebrating while wearing dog masks because you guys were underdogs against the Patriots. Yeah. And one night, in specific, the 76ers asked you and Lane to ring their ceremonial bell before a big game. How clear is your memory of that night? Well, yeah, so I, I knew this might be coming, but I think I had let it slip on my podcast that, uh, that, that you know, I was on an edible. <laughs> the first time I rang the bell was with Lane, and we had had some edibles, and I think we hit the bell on the wrong part. I think we hit, like, the arm of the bell. It was really confusing. But like, you know, being on an edible is a whole range of states that I could be in. Absolutely. I could be on 10, 15 milligrams and just be at a, at a business meeting. You know, it's just like, hey, I'm just... Functional. Or we could be on a flight home and I'm watching MacGruber. <laughs> but I think the hard part about that bell, and I found it out again when I rang it last week. Yes, you were back there for the NFC title game. Yes. Yeah, I was back there for the title game. And so now that I've been back twice, I feel like I'm in that mode where I can kind of, the first time, I'm not going to comment on the bell being small. I'm not making an excuse. I think it's high time to talk about maybe a larger bell. Uh, (laughs) You know, like the bell is just hard to hit that thing hard. It's just a little mallet, smallish bell. Maybe get the real the real Liberty Bell's not as big as you think either. Mm. But uh, you know, maybe something a little bit a little bit girthier that we can really, <laughs> you know, you you know where to hit it. Ahead of this game, I do want to appreciate what it's like to win a Super Bowl in Philly. 
because you come from an NFL family, your brother, your dad, you know, you've been around the block, but it feels like winning this in Philly, even after you won a Super Bowl with New England, it feels like there's something else here. And I want to hear your explanation of how different and how special it is beyond just like the cliches of, of what we can perceive from outside. What's it really like? Well, I've never been in more of the right place at the right time in my life than in Philly in 2017. I just, you know, everything that led me to making that decision, you know, it's one of those things, you know, in the moment, when you go up to New England, I went up to New England, kind of, you know, I was ring chasing, I was doing, which is a different term in football than it is in basketball. I mean, like, every year there's guys, there's hired guns going to New England trying to, you know, pre-Tom Brady leaving, yep. get that ring. And uh, it actually came down to Atlanta and New England for me. And ironically, you're sitting there at the half and I'm talking to Rob Ninkovich and I'm thinking in my head, like, man, I should just walk over there and play for Dan Quinn. Like, you know, act like none of this ever happened. <laughs> one shotgun snap, back pedals, throws a short pass. It's caught by Coleman over the silver five. First sideline runs inside the pylon. Touchdown. He beat Ninkovich to the end zone. And Atlanta is running away midway through the third quarter. 27-3 over New England. But like everything lined up right for me where Hey, had we not won that game, I think I might have retired. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it up to the red arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. Diving to the yes! goal line. It's a touchdown and a title for the Patriots. It. I can't believe it. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Had we lost that game, I probably wouldn't have kept playing. But just being able to win that game, it allowed me to say, hey, I'm going to walk away from this great situation and I want to see what's on the other side. And nobody was calling me. And I was like, hey, you know, you think the Eagles would have any interest? Like, I, I believe it or not, I'm still trying to play. I think people think I'm dead or something. <laughs> and everything that came together for us, we were so damn lucky to be there. No person played a bigger role than the next. I mean, obviously, they're great players on the team, but it just felt like such a team down to the fact that you lose your starting quarterback and next man up is ultimately the truth when it comes to that position, which is so rarely the case. Foles running up and down the line. It's a direct snap, and it goes to Clement, who gives it off to Burton, the tight end, who then throws in the end zone. Touchdown! Foles caught the ball on a touchdown pass of the yard by the tight end. What did we just see? Everything about it was awesome, and it was the fact that it was our first Super Bowl in that city. And and now I say our. Yes, I, I was going to call you out, but it, it, it seems sincere yeah because I, I do like ever since playing there i just it gets down in your blood like that city what makes it so awesome is whatever you give is what you get and you know there are some years there where if you were there during a lean year you might not feel that way as much but like on a good team yep in that city you can be a king and honestly there's such a feeling of community there where everybody's together and they're all on the same team and you know it's not in a way where it's like you go to some place in the NFL and fans will stop you and be like, welcome, you know, kind of like you should be happier here. I feel like, mm. um, but not there. It's like, we're so happy to have you. They go to the max of being part of the team without overstepping the boundary and thinking that, that it's about them. Like it is truly about the product. It's about football. It's about, it's about Sundays. It's about, you know, it's about the experience and the tailgating is awesome. I went there over the weekend the NFC Championship, I was drunk in like 45 minutes. I just, it just hit me like a wave. I caught a guy, he fell off the bus. Like there was a guy up on the bus and he fell almost certainly to his death. 
I caught him. This is man of the year behavior. This is exactly what I expect from you now. Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not curing any diseases, but what I am doing is I'm drunk by the back of the bus when the guy happens to fall <laughs> into my arm off the, the, he was up there taking a picture, but. But this is, but this is the thing though, right? Is the yeah, atmosphere, yeah. the intensity, the idea that like you're now in the family and they will be loving and. Totally unhinged. Unhinged. Yeah. And, and that's all, but that's all you want for me. It was like football heaven. It was just like a place that cares, a place that's packed every Sunday, a place where we're winning, and um, a place that's never done it before. So it's not old. You know, like you won in New England. Yes. It was awesome. It was awesome, but it was such a relief for, for me from a career pers perspective, but then also it was just like part of what they do. Yep. And you get down to Philly and like my parents went to Villanova and my wife's from South Jersey. So I just loved that city. And yeah, it was personal too. So I want to get into what it was like in practice, I guess. And I say that because I've been trying to figure out how to understand. We're going to talk about both the O-line and the D-line here, but you yeah. are, again, an excellent edge rusher for the Eagles, which means that you have a unique perspective, intimately unique perspective. Here is a D-line with four pass rushers with double-digit sacks, which has never happened before. Right. The way that this line was constructed and has been performing... For people who don't fully understand defensive line play, like this seems not just rare, but like absurd. It's unique, man, because, well, I'm, I know some of these guys, right? Like I, I rush with them and it's also five years later. And like the fact that Fletcher Cox had such a good year this year, I mean, there were people writing him off. He was one of the most dominant players I ever seen in 2017. And I've been on a lot of deep D-line units. When I was in St. Louis, we had a two deep that was terrifying. And then you get to Philly and I'm like, damn, we have this on a good team now. Like we're actually going to be able to rush the passer and that sort of thing. So then they re-up and they add guys in free agency like uh, Hassan Reddick, Hargrave, Josh Sweat in the draft who should have been a top five pick if not for his knee. I mean, he had an amputation damn near on his right knee. And now he's like a double digit guy. We could see that coming from the beginning. Brandon Graham's on the bench. Oh, Linval Joseph. We oh, Jordan Davis. We picked him up in the draft. Right, out of Georgia. Uh, oh, Dominican Sue. You know, it's like, oh, look who I found in, in the couch cushion. <laughs> no, he showed up in the NFC title game. He shows up and I'm like, I, I honestly, I had forgotten that you guys had Dominican Sue just sitting around. Robert Quinn. Robert yeah. Quinn's sitting around. They, people are like, yo, Robert Quinn's not making any plays. What's the deal? I'm like, because they don't need him to guy barely plays because there's so many dudes up front can you explain what kind of a particular creature a pass rusher is just as a as yeah. a character in what ways yeah. are they different because again you're talking about waves of guys that are both all big egos but are cooperating in a way that i want to understand what is this normally like First off, I would, I would, out of all the, the rooms in a building, we're like the big rich kids, you know, like because <laughs> they pay us well. In St. Louis, we were all first rounders, right? Like it was me, yeah. Robert Quinn, Aaron Donald, you know, Kendall Langford, Michael Brockers, like Nick Fairley was there. Everybody was like the guy in their own way. But what you are when you're a D lineman is you're more prone to play as a team. I mean, we, we, there's an intense like group mindset. Hunting as a pack. Yeah, you do hunt as a pack. And, you know, every now and again, you get guys that are more individuals. But 
it is such a, hey, if we work together, we're all going to succeed. Like where if you're a receiver, you're like, I want my touches. But the way that we're all grouped together and the way that everybody's rush affects the other person's rush, the lanes, you know, sometimes I'd look in at Fletcher Cox and just the look is going to tell him I'm going to take the inside move. Like if you get good enough with one of your brothers down there, you know, you can almost kind of, you know, nonverbal that thing. It's a tight bond, man. And um, I think the best D-lines are like that. We are crazy, but we're good. You know, like we're a chaotic good people, but we're unselfish in a way that other position groups can't quite identify with because of the way we have to work with each other. It's like survival depends on us working together. You're describing this this unit then, the Eagles D-line, yeah. as a particularly extreme version of those principles. Guys who are yes. like willing to come off the bench to do this. And I can remember the first time when I was in St. Louis and I'm like a 13-sack guy. I was playing 83 plays. Jeff Fisher comes in. And this is about the time in the NFL where I think the Giants had a lot to do with this and that sort of thing. When you recognize that, hey, a defensive line in modern-day football can be the determining factor and the depth of that defensive line. Like Jeff came in, brought William Hayes in, who's one of my best friends, who's a great football player in his own right. And somebody pushed me a lot. And Jeff was like, listen, like there was a time we went down to Detroit and played. And after the game, he talked to me. He's like, I will let you guys be responsible for your subs. Like, you know, you put your hand up, Mm. guy comes out. We're kind of dictating how much, but he needs to play more. And for me, that was really hard to hear because I'm a big rhythm guy. I want to get in a rhythm and I want to play a lot of plays. Like I pride myself in wearing people down. But it was a turning point in my career where I realized, okay, from here on out, football's different and I have to get better at playing 35 snaps a game. And that was something I kind of had to buy into. And it carried into, you know, ironically late in my career when I was on one of those truly rotational groups. That's a big deal in football now. Just to explain it like I'm five, like the whole upside of having all of these guys who are really good is not merely having like uh, your choice to order off this menu. It's the idea that you're getting them at a particular energy level that is unavailable if they are grinding away at the rates that they would otherwise be on a shallower team. And I think it's there's a compounding effect of like, okay, I've been in a few games where they'll rotate a tackle in, okay, which never happens really. But like sometimes a a team or two I played with like rotated. We played Houston once when I was in St. Louis. And there were two different tackles that would come out there. And I just remember how off-putting that was to me because I wasn't able to hone in on the tendencies of one guy the same way. And, you know, like, it's the same thing for rushers. Everybody's got a different style. Okay, you got to block Josh Sweat one play. Okay, now Brandon Graham's coming in. He's a totally different player. It's like Tim Wakefield and so yeah <laughs> yes no tim wakefield the famous knuckleballer for the boston red sox the, sty- the styles change a lot just look at look at brandon graham's body and then look at josh sweat's body hassan reddick has a different skill set you know and then you kick brandon graham down inside you know you just were dealing with limval joseph okay now you've got a, an end who's built totally different when we talk about styles it's almost like i am now envisioning like almost um like martial arts disciplines, like fighting yeah. styles. Um, yeah. But explain like how approaches vary among D linemen such that if you're an O lineman, you're like, wait a minute, this guy is now deliberately, you mentioned a knuckleballer like Tim Wakefield. Yeah. Is it actually like that, a fastball versus a knuckleballer? Yes, it is. Um, putting in my terms, early in my career, I was explosive. I could get the edge, but after some injuries and age, like my rush plan changed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd go to a long arm a lot. 
you know, so for me, not a particularly long arm guy. What I do is I play with angles and I, and I would change the length of my body by getting sideways and going to one arm. You know, there are certain players that would give me a lot of trouble who had great length. Well, maybe somebody with longer arms than me or better leverage than me, that's not as big of a challenge. So they would have a different rush plan. And there are different ways offensive linemen can set. You can set vertically, you can set horizontally, vertical being more of a backup set, horizontal is going to be more out at you. When I got in the league in 2008, the game was different. There was a lot more of a predictable set from an offensive tackle. There were these big bruiser guys that would try to knock your head off. Mm. And it was like you get the two-hand punch coming and you know when it's coming. The hard part was knocking those big-ass hands down. Later in my career, it was more like, hey, there were guys that were holding their outside punch. Uh, you know, it was just the inside hand. So you have to go get that outside hand from them by putting your hand in their strike zone. Mm. Uh, there are guys that would have low hands. It's like a flow chart. Wait, a flow chart is not the image I have in my mind for rushing the passer. So explain what that flow chart looks like to you. Are his hands high and does he set vertically? Okay, well, that's one way you're going to, there's one way you're going to attack him. Are his hands high and does he set horizontally? Okay, well, the inside move with a swipe is going to probably pop up. Does he have low hands? If his hands were low, you want to go get his chest and demand that he sets an anchor and then it might be bull jerk. And a bull jerk, a great term, by the way, that is when you basically act like you're going to bull rush straight at the lineman, right? And then yeah. as he sets his anchor to absorb that, you pull him, you jerk him forward, so you can just go around him, which is, yeah, one of many options, apparently, in this D-line flowchart. One of my teammates, we have a St. Louis Rams group text that still fires off a bunch, and guys will find old shit that we had in the locker room and put it in the group text. And just two days ago, we had these sheets that was like a chart of all the tackles that we were going to play. And it was, is he a horizontal setter? Is he a vertical setter? Is he a puncher? Mm. Does he have an inside hand punch? Does he hold his hands? Are they low? All those variables lead you to making a decision that's already preordained, on paper at least, where it's like, okay, that move is what works against this guy. Now, I'm not a huge fan of doing that to a T because in a game, you could watch a guy for two weeks on tape but he's going to feel differently. Yeah. So, you know, weighing in not only the matchup, what's on paper, and then making adjustments on the fly. So there's a lot of chess going on. And so when you look ahead to the Chiefs from the D-line perspective, right, you have all of these dudes, waves of dudes, ready to uh, brutalize you. Yeah. Here we have Patrick Mahomes off of this, like, uh, right ankle sprain, and you have this Chiefs O-line that clearly knows what they got to do. How do you think this goes? Well, I think the, the Eagles have some matchups they can exploit. Um, you know, I think uh, at, at edge, at tackle, and one of the things that you got to watch is Sam Reddick on, on Wiley. Right, Andrew Wiley, Kansas City's right offensive tackle. Orlando Brown's going to be a big one. He's the Chiefs' left tackle. Josh Sweat's a tough matchup for him. You talk about rushing him with speed. And inside... I think the where where if you're the Chiefs, you kind of feel decent about your matchups is those interior three, right? You can start there. I think then what you have to do outside is you have to chip out some, and uh, they're in 13 personnel a lot in Kansas City, and they've done really well with that with a lot of tight ends on the field. I think sometimes people are looking as like, 
why is Mahomes throwing to Jody Fortson? Why is he throwing to, <laughs> to Bell or that sort of thing? Like, I've never heard of these guys. It's the power of having those guys on the field. Right, the three tight end formation. Yeah, yeah for, for protection's sake. Because what you can do is you can play with alignments to make it tougher on Hassan Reddick. Like, I would put a tight end down, vary your looks. So then Hassan, if you're following at home, has to make a decision as a rusher. Like, do I want to line up in that crease be between the tight end with a, less of an advantageous angle to rush the passer? Or do I, do I have to step outside him and take the long way? They don't have to chip every time. Just having a tight end lined up right outside you, looking down at you, you are thinking. You're not playing. And, and Hassan, he's such a great first-step guy. Like, gaining that little bit of advantage to get him down the middle of, of uh, Andrew Wiley's body, those are the little things that they're going to have to do, playing with alignments, chipping. And I think for Mahomes... He's a guy who drifts to like 9, 10, 11 yards. Like if you watch Mahomes, like there is no pocket. Right. The way they rush him is going to be interesting. You know, forcing him to run to spots that he doesn't have the best arm angles. I know it's Patrick Mahomes, but, you know, if you're going to let him break the pocket, have him break the pocket the other way. Take some inside moves to his blind side. You know, there's a bunch of little games that you can play with your rush alignments and the gaps that you take to dictate that it's not going to be a comfortable pocket. You're describing like Mahomes being pocketless, essentially, or yes. unpocketed, whatever you want to yeah. use for that. How much does that weigh on you as a pass rusher? The idea that this guy isn't going to be where conventionally, yeah, you would like him to. As an edge rusher, you have to be really careful about, you know, rushing with vision so that, hey, if I'm going to go long arm like a stab, if I want to stab the tackle, and then get his outside shoulder, I have to have vision so that I can post him back and come on up underneath and take the inside move and vice versa. If I take an inside move, I have to communicate to my guys inside uh, because he is mobile enough to hurt you. You don't want to be the guy. The worst feeling as a rusher is giving up contain, especially on a play where, you know, there's a design, there's a pressure on the other side. And then Mahomes rolls out to his ball hand side and delivers a dart 40 yards down the field to MVS, like that's your worst nightmare. So you have to communicate and you have to rush with vision. With Patrick Mahomes, it's almost impossible to score perfectly on a test. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you go out there, you try to rush him too perfect, it can slow you down. And then you're gonna yell at for not winning rushes. After the break, how your good friend Lane Johnson, Chris, slows down the best pass rushers in the NFL with a torn groin. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Now let's talk about the play of the week. 
The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So we just talked about the Eagles D-line, and so now it is time to turn to the other side of the ball here. The offensive line that you went up against in practice, right, mm-hmm. happens to be regarded now on this team as not just the best in the league right now, but like one of the best people can remember. Yeah. And I want to explain for people what it was like for you to try and play chess, so to speak, against them in practice. It's a great question because it can almost work against you. You know, you're like, okay, if you practice against Lane Johnson every day, you're not going to see anybody as good as him, right? And that was something that became readily apparent to me early in training camp in 2017. I was like, I don't know how to beat this guy. The guy, by the way, um, we should probably start by actually just acknowledging he has a torn groin. Incredible. I mean, that's a tough injury to play through. And being a friend of mine, like talking to him through this whole thing. Yeah. There was a point where I don't, you know, like hearing him talk a month ago, I didn't know that he'd be able to play. Right. uh, Let alone be competitive and to come back and give up no pressure so far to make it look easy at times. Against Nick Bosa. In the NFC title game. Yes. I think it's, there's a rare combination of drive, technique, and freakish athletic ability. Like, I grew up in a house full of freaks in nature. I'm like number three on that list in my house, maybe. (laughs) You know, like my brother Kyle's like, I mean, this guy's a central casting for Game of Thrones. (laughs) Carrying a battle axe. I think of Kyle Long as carrying a battle axe essentially around. Yeah. Pretty much. And, you know, it's the same thing with Lane. And, you know, Lane... To be so good in space, he's got such great feet. You know, like if you bring a speed rusher out there, I've seen him block Von Miller, I've seen him block Khalil Mack, all these guys. Nobody beats him to a spot. I mean, his his first step is so quick and so deep that he's going to beat you to that spot. So that's off the table. And then you get to there, he's able to do that while staying square. So by staying square, you have an ability to redirect, to anchor on the inside move. And then the last piece of it is like, well, if a guy can beat you to a spot, and he sits on the inside move because he's square, chances are you can probably open up his inside shoulder and go to power. That's always been my answer. Mm. That's not available with Lane because of what I described with his punch and his leverage. I mean, the guy's in there all offseason doing the weirdest core work you've ever seen. The guy works on his (laughs) body more than anybody I know. Wait, what makes core work weird as you understand it, guy who obviously knows what it means to work out? He's doing these really unorthodox exercises. If you walked in, You'd, you'd be like, that's not an NFL player. That's like a gymnast doing that or that sort of thing. Like, you know, I really do believe his core, his core strength, his stability, his balance was the things that some people neglect are so damn good that, you know, like when you get hit with that inside punch, you can really feel his strength in a way that other players don't have. But when, when Lane decides, okay, anchor, like when he drops that anchor, there's no time from you know, when he decides to drop that anchor into when you're all of a sudden standing still. So right. he's a great tackle. And I think sometimes people hold the right tackle thing against him, but... Because the left tackle is the glamour position, defending the blind side, this is the whole deal. That's what they say. Allegedly. But in today's game, look at the best rushers. So many of them line up on the left side. 
And, you know, for Lane, uh, I think he deserves the credit that I think he's due. You know, that's independent of where he lines up. So the idea that, okay, there's that guy at right tackle. Yeah. And then at center is Jason Kelsey. And look, people, yeah. I think most sports fans now have a pretty good sense of the fact that Jason Kelsey is a thing. The Kelsey Bowl is a thing. Um, Jason Kelsey might retire, it seems, after this season. We don't yeah. know. But I, I just want to remark on what he is and how different he is from the typical center to, again, classify positions as characters. He's like a linebacker playing center. I mean, when you see him get up to the second level, when you see what he did last week in the run game, and then having those big, those big guards. I mean, like early in that game, Javon Kinlaw is going for a ride. Yep. Uh, and, you know, as a side note, San Francisco, as good as they are across the board, they're not real good inside. Um, you know, having Jason in there quarterbacking that offensive line and having those two huge guards, uh, Landon Dickerson is one of the biggest human beings I've ever seen. Jason is uh, he's one in a million. And I think like one of those, one of those guys, you know, how some, some athletes get really hyped up and we we're tired of hearing about him. This guy is one in a million and what you see is what you get. And he's legitimately the closest thing I've seen to folklore in a major city. Yeah. The work he's done in the community to the way he just pops up at like a bar and everybody's got a story about seeing Jason Kelsey in the wild. So I think he's just so Philly and he's such a great player, uh, and he seems to get better with time. But the idea that he's actually underrated, that we still don't fully get why it is so special, yeah. that a guy who isn't shaped like a center typically gets to move around. And enable, by the way, this gets to the next question that I had, which was the degree to which they just force-feed RPOs down yeah. the throats of a defense— yep. Yep. The fact that Jason Kelsey enables this, it just feels especially dispiriting if you're a defense and this is what you're getting and you know you're going to get it in some form, but you don't know exactly how, but here it comes and try to enjoy the taste of it. The RPOs, the zone reads, I mean, they ran zone, zone read to death down the stretch this year. And, yeah. um, you know, you need athletic guys inside. Um, you know, another thing is that RPO thing. It's just you, you used a, a word, I think it was discouraging, uh, but like that is what it it really is to a defensive lineman when you know the ball's out quick, you're not sure if it's run or pass. The offense has an answer for everything you're doing. That can be really frustrating, and that can kind of wear on a group when it comes to like the third and fourth quarter. You know, not getting into a rhythm, that sort of thing. So I would imagine we're going to see our fair share of that. And for them, you know, when you juxtapose like the Eagles line to the Chiefs line. Right. You got to pick your poison with the Eagles. There's one guy up front for, for the, the Chiefs. They have some nice pieces outside of him. Dunlap's played well. Frank Clark's played well. Um, but, but there's one guy you got to know exactly where he lines up, and that's Chris Jones. Yeah, Chris Jones at defensive tackle. Um, the threat he poses, how do you assess him in all of this as you just outlined it? Well, you know, it's like when I watch a Chiefs game, you know, whether it's end zone tape or condensed game, my window into the play is Chris Jones. Like, I'm going to find him first. He's going to dictate slide. Where's the double team? Where are they lining him up? Hey, let's line Chris up where we can get a matchup. And I think for him, uh, this week, it's going to be over one of the guards. You know, I don't think he's necessarily going to go out outside. And for the Eagles, they have to figure out how, how can we work slide to him and also know and play chess and it's not just one layer of like, where's Chris Jones? It's like, what's, where's Chris Jones? Why is he there? Right. And where are we going? 
And where are we going to be exposed if we bring the whole house to block this guy and, and kind of do what they, they know we're going to do, which is focus on Chris Jones. So, okay, let's say, let's say your Philadelphia Eagles win their second Super Bowl. How is Chris Long celebrating? He's celebrating at home because, um, <laughs> you know, I'm going out to Phoenix Tuesday through Saturday. I'm going to get back here, do a live watch. And then in a week, I got to go to Africa. So I don't think I can swing the parade trip. Although, um, you know, I, I do I do remember riding on that bus and thinking it'd be cool to be one of these people one time. Like the same way that I used to sit in my hotel room thinking, hey, it'd be cool to tailgate right now. I mean, this is cool plan. Yes. Uh, it would be cool to be on Broad Street kind of watching those guys uh, roll by. Um, so, yeah, I'll celebrate at home. Uh, and, and I'll watch the, the parade on TV. Right, because Chris Long, again, man of the year, needs to genuinely go and raise money to build wells in East Africa exactly. for his foundation. And that means that maybe you can only sneak in, what, like an edible on the plane then? No, I mean, yeah, definitely. I, I'm definitely going to be sneaking in a couple edibles on the plane. It's like a 24-hour <laughs> trip to East Africa. I'm going to be... And, you know, you don't want to go through customs with edibles, so you want to eat them all. First rule of Fight Club, eat them all on the way. <laughs> Chris Long, thank you on every level for sharing with us your uh, veteran savvy. Pablo, appreciate you, man. Good talking to you. For more about Chris Long's very real and genuinely inspiring foundation, whose mission is to provide sustainable access to clean drinking water for one million people worldwide, please check out waterboys.org. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>